and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Gear readings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I am still writing about baseball for The Athletic. And as always, I am joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. And Doug, this week in Starkville, we are going to go where we've never gone before. We're going to connect the dots between you and Michael Jordan. All right. (laughs) Yes. You know, that shows how creative we are here, either that or how desperate we are here. Take your pick. (laughs) But we will be visited by the only man ever to manage both Michael Jordan and you that I know of. Uh, Doug, can you identify this famous mystery guest? I'm going to get this one right, 100%. (laughs) Terry Tito Francona. Yeah, good guess. Uh, That's exactly right. Terry Francona will join us to talk about Michael Jordan's only dance as a baseball player, and also about baseball and the Indians in 2020, and about his greatest thrill as a manager, managing Doug Glanville. I love it. sure that must be it, right? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of fun. Well, we're also going to talk about the strangest home run ever hit, uh, get some Michael Jordan stories from Doug, and try to figure out why Doug is the man forgotten by baseball history (laughs) (laughs) or whatever. Uh, First, Doug, I, I, I think we need to talk about hair. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but it keeps growing. (laughs) Like even during times like this, when there is no one waiting down the street with a pair of scissors to cut it. And uh, that caused Brandon McCarthy, who's one of our favorite pitching witnesses philosophers to tweet a couple weeks ago, said something like, I'm I'm guessing this is the hairiest we have been as a species since (laughs) the (laughs) seventies. So, so I tweeted back at him. I'm waiting for the invention of Zoom Barber and Zoom Hair Salon. I would definitely buy stock in that. So I'm just curious what emergency measures you're taking to keep your hair under control these days, because that is getting to be a challenge that has become, in my estimation, the single greatest bonding force among all non-bald American males. (laughs) Well, the answer is none. I'm taking no precautions. I'm doing absolutely oh, nothing. And really? uh, it's it's not great, actually. Um, if I comb it, first of all, I'm glad we don't do video here because this would be a disaster. Yeah. Uh, so that's good. But um, yeah, I just let it go. So I have a combination of what I call a shag and afro. So it's like an afro shag because it's, it's growing up and outward, but it's also growing down my neck as if I'm yeah. some sort of lion or tiger species. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure where it's going. Now, 2003, I did let my hair grow. My helmet size went from a seven and three eighths to an eight. 
I had a total fro. People were feeling it. And, but I had no plan. And Dusty Baker was like, you either got to, you got to braid it or you got to cut it because it's completely out of control. <laughs> and since Medusa had nothing on me, I figured, all right, I guess I need to, I need to cut it. So I cut it. So, uh, but I'm approaching the Gary Maddox, Oscar Gamble level. Really? Uh, I'll, I'll get there eventually. Uh, certainly within the next six months, I'm feeling it. Wow. Well, I have to admit that I, I've been doing a little snipping and a little clipping. So I don't totally resemble the Geico caveman yet. <laughs> but I, I, I also have to admit when our lawn guys showed up the other day to mow our lawn, I was really tempted to ask if they could also mow my head <laughs> when they're done. You think I should try that next week or just keep doing what I'm doing? Well, I think that would end our podcast, unfortunately, if they ever did that. <laughs> yeah, drive a mower over my head. It probably wouldn't end well. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Doug, we actually feel for every barber and every hairstylist and everyone who makes a living at all the small businesses in America that are the lifeblood of this country. And as every week goes by, all of us at Starkville are thinking of everybody out there whose lives have been touched by this virus. So if you're healthy and still employed and you can help in any way, there are people out there who need our help. I can tell you the Starks donated this week to Adam Wainwright's Foundation, Big League Impact, donated to the Anthony Rizzo Family Foundation, also donated to Feeding America and to World Central Kitchen. It's just our way of doing what we can to help people in need right now. Doug, what do you have to report on your end? Yeah, I, I continue to be amazed by my wife's uh, efforts to sew and sew and sew. And she keeps going with uh, her masks. And also now she's graduated to gowns and caps. You can, you can pretty much send her anything. <laughs> and if there's a pattern to it, she, she knocks it out. She's got a great knack for it. So, uh, and the other thing is we've both been always involved in education locally. School, uh, my wife was on the Board of Ed for years at Hartford and school governance councils. And uh, so we're, you know, considering what's going to happen with a lot of the students have missed so much time, especially if you're at a gross disadvantage and trying to figure out how to transition back once we come out of this into school. So uh, we've been ramping up in that area to support. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's trying time and we're thinking of each other, even though it's hard when you're in that sort of hourly mindset, but there's so much that we can do and I'm, I'm glad to be able to share it. And if our platform allows more people to, to hear and think about it, then, you know, this is a, a great byproduct of our love of baseball. Yeah, let's really try to help in whatever way we can all help because there are a lot of people out there who need that help. All right, man, let's move on with this show. Doug, we are honored to be joined this week by a man with an incredible list of career accomplishments. He's a two-time manager of the year. He's a two-time World Series winner. He's a man who once ordered $44 worth of ice cream from room service. <laughs> He's the only man that I know of to manage both Michael Jordan and Doug Glanville. Oh, yeah. But one more thing. <laughs> same, same athlete. Same exact athlete, actually. <laughs> Very similar. One more thing, though. Terry Francona and I know something about each other that no one else knows. We're volleyball dads. Our, girl, <laughs> our girls used to play volleyball against each other. And Terry, you can admit it now, sitting up in the corner of those high school gyms watching volleyball with me 
has to be your number one memory of your time, whether you're in Philadelphia, right? Oh, my. You know what would be so funny, Jason, is I'd read one of your articles or something, you know, and you were, you know, doing your national stuff. And then I'd get out of the car and go up the corner of either the Pensbury or the Newtown gym, and there you'd be sitting. <laughs> and I would laugh so hard because for the last – I don't know, 20 years. That's probably the first thing every time we see each other, we yeah. laugh about and they're good memories and it, it never ceases to make me laugh. Yeah, me too. Now I, I want I want everybody to know that I once stood up to ask a question at a world series press conference in 2016 and Terry Francona actually asked, is this a new town volleyball question? <laughs> right. True story. Right. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, That's how much I, I mean, I got a chuckle out of it, and it was kind of our own personal joke. It was. But every time I see it, it's the first thing that comes out of my mouth. And it just, <laughs> yeah. it probably gets old for you, but it doesn't for me. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I want you to know that, you know, they print up the transcripts from every press conference. That's in there. <laughs> so anyway enough volleyball uh, no volleyball updates from me right now but we do need some baseball updates so we're going to get some michael jordan stories from terry in a minute but let's let's start with baseball how confident are you that the cleveland indians will play baseball this year and if so when or how you know guys um I don't. I I really believe that Major League Baseball is going to do everything in their power when it's appropriate to play baseball. I know they're looking at all kinds of scenarios, and you've read some of them. I've read some of them. There's probably a million more. I think the biggest thing is to do it appropriately, and that's when it's safe for the players and their families, and then when it's also when you're not taking away from anybody with the public, you know, whether it's testing or, you know, safety, um, we got to do it when it's appropriate, but I really do think it's going to happen. And that's maybe because I have confidence in, in people in our, in our country that they're smart enough to get this thing figured out and find a way to beat it, even though it's, it's a pretty formidable, formidable opponent. I think we have people that are smart enough to figure out a way to get, get through this. Yeah, and I would agree that everybody in baseball that I talk to is incredibly motivated to play somehow. So that would bring us to a question I know Doug wants to ask you about, Terry, and that is your players, Doug. Yeah, I mean, and you know, Terry, how are you communicating with them? And, and like, what's the tenor and the, the sort of tone about what's going to happen next? I mean, just to keep a team together uh, from this distance and doing it through zoom or phones or however, I mean, what have those communications been like? You know what, Dougie, that's, that's kind of been the, the thing we we've been trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. You know, I thought Chris and Cherney, my bosses, I thought they did a terrific job early on where they, they communicated to not only the players, but to me and the coaches and everybody, let's be safe. We're not looking for, for an advantage competitively. We're trying to get people safe. So they got everybody to, to their homes. They took care of all that. Once everybody got settled, then we started having calls, you know, between the organization. Okay, what do we want to communicate to the players? You know, we didn't want to encourage them to, to put themselves at risk just to stay in shape. So what we tried to do then is we started having, like you said, Zoom calls. 
the pitching guys would talk to the pitchers. Uh, me and the coaches talked to the position players. And if one, it was good to get everybody on the call just to hear them kind of hooting a little bit on each other and getting back to, <laughs> to having some fun and seeing them laugh. But then we just said, hey, look, keep yourselves in shape the best you can. Pitchers, keep your arms moving because we're going to have time when it's when it comes time to play baseball. But the better shape we're in, one, the more baseball we can ask you to do and the less injuries we're going to have because of it. You know, Terry, I've, I've seen you quoted on this. Uh, whatever kind of season baseball winds up having, the, the one word that won't apply to it is normal. <laughs> so there's just this sense out there that this is an opportunity to maybe try some stuff, you know, maybe try some things that have been dangling out there, talked about rule changes. Is there anything that you would like to see explored, whether it's the extra inning tiebreaker rule or pitch clock or any of that stuff? You know, um, in talking to guys, MLB, you know, whether it's Peter Fork or Chris Young, I've, I've told them that because I've been pretty vocal about some of the changes they've made that I'm not too thrilled about. But I told him, I said, this is, a, this is an extenuating circumstance. And we, the people in baseball, need to embrace whatever it is they ask us to do this year. I think if, if we can almost make this a celebration, and, and, and it would be terrific. And again, if that means making adjustments and, and not vocalizing you know, things that you don't necessarily agree with. This is not the time to do that. It's time to, to be flexible and do what's best for everybody. And if that means making some changes, I'm all for it. Yeah, I really hope that that is the spirit with which everybody approaches this, if there's going to be the opportunity to play. Now, I, I saw where you said the other day that you have watched every single show on Netflix <laughs> except Tiger King. So I, I've got two things. First is, did you not watch Tiger King because you thought it was about Miguel Cabrera? And, <laughs> and two, what's the very best show you watch since we're now all creatures of Netflix? <laughs> You know, I, I, I've dug so deep um, <laughs> that that I just um, – but my, I think my favorite show so far is – it was a French show, and it was, uh, it was called uh, The Money Heist. It was called a different name in French. It was La, like the, the Lapel Ministerial or something like that, the paper ministry. But it was uh-huh. about people that robbed the – the gold out of the oh, ministry yeah. of France. Oh, wow. And you know what? It, it was really good. Um, the other one I watched was bad blood. It was about the, the rush, uh, the mafia in Montreal, Quebec. Um, I thought that was really good. Um, I've watched shooter <laughs> three years of that. And I was wishing there would have been more. <laughs> and then I've dug deep on some other ones. I, you know what? Everybody told me you got to watch Ozark. I've tried, I've tried my rear end off. I can't stay with it. And I'm just, I wish I did because there's a lot of it to watch, but I just <laughs> can't get into it. 
All right. Well, that was very important to get those programming tips from <laughs> Terry Francona because right. we're going to, that's a good segue into where we're going next. I, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but there's a little Michael Jordan programming on TV at the moment. That's <laughs> true. Did, did you get to see the, the first two episodes of The Last Dance? Um, by the way, spoiler alert, it looks like they edited out your part in the Michael Jordan saga. You know what? Um, I, I did watch last night, and I've been told by a Michael Jordan confidant that I do get my 15 seconds of fame, right. but not one second more. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say that's about right? Good ratio? Yeah, I'd say that's, yeah, I'd say that's about right. Um, I actually thought it was really interesting. And, and again, because I got an up-close you know, and personal year with Michael – being able to watch some of the other stuff is really interesting to me watching the dynamics between he and the bulls and uh, ownership and front office. And it's just, I'm looking. And, and again, the other thing is that I'm just so desperate to watch something different that I'm actually just really <laughs> excited. That it was on. Yeah. We can all share that. And so were, were there moments, were there elements of Michael that you saw in that show that Michael, the hoop legend, that you remember from managing him in Birmingham in 1994? Yes. And you know what it was? It was that, I don't know if you'd call it a smirk, but it was that look he'd give you, like, as he's walking <laughs> away, he turned his head and give you that little half smile, half smirk, like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have bet against me. <laughs> <laughs> and... It was like, you know, when he made a shot during an NBA game or something, and, and and it's the same look, and it made me laugh like crazy. Wow. I bet you saw that look a lot. Doug, I know you've you've got some questions. Go ahead, man. Yeah, I mean, I just think of um, – well, I, I'm curious from the managerial standpoint because we were in the other dugout. I played for the Orlando Cubs in that league. And of course, you the sure Cubs, did. I remember that. And the Cubs White Sox, right? Big rivalry. You had an amazing pitching staff, right? Baldwin and, and Shrink and all these guys. Yep. Uh, rough corn. I mean, they were tough. And, uh, but I, I'm curious to know you, you know, you got to not only see him through the Southern League for the AA, but you saw him all the way through the Fall League. So, what was the, the growth curve you saw between Jordan day one trying to figure out pregame routines to Jordan at the very end? you know, end of this sort of year of baseball. You know, Dougie, he came so far and, and, you know, there were so many challenges when he came to play. One for me as a young manager was everybody wanted to talk about Michael. I understood that, but I, I also wanted Randy Hood and Mike Robertson and, you know, Carrie Valerie to know that they were every bit as important to us as Michael, I just, you know, people wanted to ask about Michael and I, you know, you, you certainly understand that, but you have an obligation to the other 24 guys that, Hey man, you are every bit as important to us. You just might not be on nightline tonight. That's just the way it is. <laughs> right. um, Michael made it easy to be patient and he needed to be patient with him because he didn't, he hadn't played since high school. And, you know, you, you know how it is when you're a rookie ball and a ball, you learn a lot of the things and you get those mistakes out of the way and you get the double A and you're starting to become a kind of a polished player. He didn't have that, but to his credit, he respected the game of baseball. That was probably the most important thing to me was that he respected the game of baseball. 
And because of that, it made it really easy to be patient with him. And he just wanted to be a baseball player. He loved listening to the lingo or the, you know, the words we use. And I mean, he was never late, things like that. So it made it really easy on me and the staff. Yeah, just curious. Like, I, why, one. How? Yeah, I was just curious why okay. he, okay. why did they send him to double A? Did they, was there any time in A ball? Like, why did he go straight to Southern League? For his first, I think it was twofold, Dougie. I think one was they thought if they sent him to A ball, they might not have had the facilities to maybe be able to handle the media and things like that. And that year in Birmingham, we actually didn't. We had two outfielders that we thought were were pretty good prospects, and, and the other position, I think they felt like maybe it was kind of we had a, we had a slot where he could fill in and not take somebody's at bats. Terry, how is Michael the baseball player different than Michael the basketball player? I mean, on the basketball court, he could do almost anything he wanted when he needed to. Obviously, baseball was a lot different, but there was how would you compare him and his whole persona as baseball player to what you saw on the basketball court? You know, I think that maybe the easiest way I can do it is when you put a basketball in his hand, it's amazing how much stronger he looked. That's probably the easiest way I can say it. Mm-hmm. He was really open, though, about, you know, when he became a baseball player, he said, he goes, I'm the worst player on the team. He goes, I know it. He goes, I'm the most inexperienced, and I have the most to learn. And so he made, like I said, he made it easy to kind of want to help him. Um, he just, you know, again, he knew he knew what he didn't know. And, and because of that, it was easy to want to help him. And like I said, be patient. Well, you mentioned basketball. I know you got to play a little hoops with Michael Jordan. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 one of your favorite stories that I can remember you telling is the time you guys are playing a pickup game. You were on his team. You took the last shot. If I remember right, he didn't think that was like optimal strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can give you a little background on that. Um, this was in the fall league, so I knew Michael pretty well by now. And we used to go to the Giants complex on off days, and we'd shoot around a little bit. And, you know, anytime Michael did anything, you know, it kind of garnered a crowd. And all of a sudden, you know, it goes from shooting around to playing five on five <laughs> with guys from the fall league. Yep. And it was Michael and the coaches <laughs> against all comers. And you play to 11, and if you win, you stay on the court. If you lose, you get off. Well, we had played about three or four games, and by now I'm, I'm out of gas. My knees hurt. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to lose. <laughs> and I, I threw up a long three-pointer and hit the front of the rim, bounced off. Curtis Pride took it and slammed it home for the other team, and they won. And I was actually kind of relieved. Wait, I was like, that? man, you're killing me. And as I'm walking off the court, I hear this. The ball is rattling off of the window up near the ceiling. And I'm like, what the heck? And, and Michael, with that little kind of that waddle he had, he kind of came up next to me, and he goes, hey, man, I always shoot last. <laughs> And, and I didn't say anything, and I was still huffing and puffing. And he looked at me and goes, seriously, he goes, I always shoot last. 
like, man, this game's not televised. <laughs> no, and he, he walked, he walked ahead of me and he got about five steps ahead of me. And I said, Michael, I said, now, you know how I feel watching you try to hit a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> and he took about another two steps and just hit the floor <laughs> before you could treat him like a normal guy. <laughs> the more he liked it, but he didn't like losing and he didn't care who you were, what the circumstances were. He didn't want to lose. So Terry, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for confirming what I knew. I was going to wonder if people would actually believe me when, you, <laughs> when I would say that we beat Michael Jordan's team in five on five basketball. Cause you know who else was on Curtis pride's team. <laughs> I was on that team. And we had Lyle Mouton, who was... Lyle Mouton. I was just going to say... Amazing. It got to the point... You guys were so young and athletic, and I had had enough. <laughs> and, and it was just... But it was... You know, the memories are incredible. But it just... Like I said, man, I had already had 15 knee surgeries. I was fine with being a spectator for a couple games. Yeah. All right, but wait wait a second. Doug Glanville beat Michael Jordan in hoops? <laughs> We have witnesses. Hey, Dougie's, we have Dougie's w- pretty athletic now. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't let him. Don't let him kid you. I mean, I I remember. I want to say my my memory's going a little Dougie, but I want to say 1999. I think you were second in the league in hitting. Am I close? Yeah, well, yeah, seven. Hit 325. Yeah, t- I was seventh. Right. I, I, I remember yeah. he, he he's he's he, he's a little better than he probably gives himself credit for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, we'll get we'll get back to Glanville in a second here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I like I love all of your Michael Jordan stories. Could you talk about Yahtzee? I'm sure it was just friendly, <laughs> non-competitive, recreational Yahtzee you and Mikey used to play, right, Terry? You know, it's funny how it even started. <laughs> we were in we were playing the Carolina Mudcats. I'm sure Dougie remembers that. <laughs> and we dressed out in right field in a trailer. And because we had just gone back to North Carolina for the first time, it was kind of a big deal to the media. You know, Michael coming back to North Carolina. And so after the game, there was going to be a big, press conference and we're sitting in the in the trailer and me and the coaches knew that we had probably a good half hour because he had to go out and talk to the media so we're playing Yahtzee and Michael walks by and he goes what are you doing (laughs) I said we're we're playing Yahtzee I said did you have a childhood (laughs) he said well teach me how to play and I said man I said go go out there and do your thing and then we'll do he goes no I want I want to learn right now <laughs> so the first thing I had to do is I had to go out and talk to the media I said look Michael was over four he's talking hitting with Mike Barnett he'll be out in a few minutes so went in there real quick taught him how to play Yossi and then for the rest of the year we played and played on the buses we play, we played all the time wow. and, and I mean it 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 got sometimes it got a little nasty, but it was we nasty it was me, Mike Barnett, Kirk Champion, and MJ. We played the whole year. Oh, Who goodness. won? You know, when it was all said and done, I don't know. I know there was a lot of arguments <laughs> about, about dice rolling over, or you know, it, I mean, the bus is moving. It's four o'clock in the morning, and we're screaming at each other. <laughs> but it it got. That's as competitive as I've ever seen Yossi in my life. (laughs) (laughs) 
we ever have a pro Yahtzee league? That'll be it. <laughs> oh man. Oh, so just curious, Tara, just what, if you were to give a scouting report of Michael Jordan, uh, a baseball scouting report, and cause there's always speculation, would he have made it? And I mean, what, what would you do? Or, or certainly if you were playing against him, how are you getting him out? What's the report on him? Well, a couple things. One, I, the first thing I would put at the bottom of the report is I learned quickly that if you tell him no, he's going to find out a way to make the answer be yes. <laughs> and so, so I got to put that in there just because that's, that's part of him. Um, I thought his swing was kind of long. I mean, again, he's a long levered guy anyway. And he was trying to figure out who he was as a hitter. Um, I thought the interesting thing about him was he stole 30 bases. He drove in 50 runs, which in, in, in the double A setting was, I thought was, again, he, he was still learning how to do those things. He went out to the fall league and I think he hit 255. I mean, he held his own. I don't think it would have been fair to judge him as a, as a, as a, baseball prospect until he had three full years under his belt but I honestly believe if he'd have given baseball three full years he'd have gotten himself to the major leagues I don't know if he'd have been an everyday player I don't but I believe in my heart he'd have found a way to get himself to the major leagues just again just speed alone I mean this guy could this guy was learning how to steal bases Here's a what if question that I actually was thinking about as I was watching the ESPN show. If Michael hits 302 instead of 202, and there had never been a strike in 1995, do you think there's any chance he never would have gone back to basketball? Well, I don't think the batting average mattered as much as the strike. I think he got put in a really difficult position. Yeah where, you know, of all people, he can't cross and, you know, and, yeah. and and I think for him that made it an easy decision. I think he loves playing baseball. And, and again, you know, everybody has their opinions on why he was playing baseball. I'm one of the few that got to see it up close and personal, and I can tell you he was doing it for all the right reasons. He loved the game. And – I, I think he wanted to give it a legit chance. And I, I don't think – he never got tired of practicing. It, it used to amaze me. You know, I, Mike Barnett was our hitting instructor, and he'd come in and he goes, ah, Michael's hands are bleeding. And I'd be like, well, I wonder why. The guy's been hitting for an hour. He just <laughs> – his, his motor never stopped. And I've heard, I've heard Phil Jackson say that. I've heard other people say it's true. He never, his motor never stopped. Yeah. One thing I noticed was he, he led your team in games played. Yep. How, how did that come about? Yeah. <laughs> Just cause he needed to play. Well, well that night I valued my job because, man, <laughs> you know, you'd go on the road and owners and GMs were coming down and they're going, you're not giving Michael a day off. Are you? <laughs> I mean, I got, I got to learn a little diplomacy early in my career as a manager. Um, he, he wanted to play every day. He didn't want a day off. Um, he's again, you know, the, the stories of his competitiveness are legendary, but they're true. This guy likes to compete and he wants to 
He wants to find a way to beat you one way or another, whether it's golf, baseball, basketball, <laughs> ping pong, it doesn't matter, or Yahtzee. He <laughs> wants to beat you, and he wants to put you into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was. I met the first time I met him was he literally beat us to our own facility in Orlando. He came out. He was in our batting cage. <laughs> he hit before the game and he hit after the game. He took batting practice, hit in the cage before and after the game, which is unheard of. I mean, he just a uh, really incredible competitor. And and so I I remember just thinking of you know wow this guy's out here early and uh, you know there's a picture somewhere of me talking to him in our hitting cage, you know, we're, you know, working out and, and just kind of working out. It's unbelievable. You know, in Birmingham, across from my office, at a, it was the equipment room, and they had set up a, a net in there and a tee. And I'd be in there after the game talking or, you know, take a shower and I'm getting ready. And I'd hear whack, whack. <laughs> and he'd be in that room hitting balls off the tee into the net. I mean, he, like I said, he never seemed to get tired. I used to, I used to laugh because I'd see his hands bleeding and I'd be like, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta let hands heal a little bit. Well, yeah. one, one honor story, uh, real quick was on, uh, he, Ed Smith, you remember Ed Smith, uh, third base? Mm -hmm. Okay, so he was, he was on our team. He was the White Sox originally. So Jordan got to third. I think it was after like he had, he had played 120 straight games or something ridiculous. And he said to Ed, he said, man, this is the most tired I've been in my career. <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's a nod to baseball. You know, it's not, the, it's not the running up and down the court. It's just that mental drain of every single day. And, and coming into a sport you hadn't played in at that level to learn how to pace yourself must have been impossible for Michael Jordan. Well, and, and I always thought the Southern League, if you could make your way through the Southern League, I mean, with the bus rides, the heat and the humidity, uh, it, was a, it was a real good testing ground for players because, like you said, it, it, could, it could grind you down. And by August, it could have everybody kind of put, you know, have your hands on your knees. It was, it was a tough place to play. Um, and Michael didn't know how to pace himself. And if he had to do it all over again, I don't know if he'd have done the same, but he, he had to be, man, that was all out. All the time. You know, Terry, I know that you and Michael have stayed in touch. I, I remember another one of your stories that didn't he just show up in the dugout in the middle of a game at Wrigley once? <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> what? He, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he he does a lot of things, man. He, he's he, I, I've stayed in touch with him. I've stayed in touch with. There's a guy named George Kohler who does all of my. He's kind of. I don't even know how to. I don't even know how to. He just Michael's guy. You know, he and he earned early on that had George around made my job way easier. We even put George in uniform dugout. Just because he was such an asset, he was that guy that never looked for confrontation, but he had like eyes coming out of the side of his head and the back of his head. And, and I've stayed in touch with George. Every time we go to Chicago, George comes and sees me. Wow. And we laugh and we tell old stories and, and we laugh some more. But, but it's amazing how the friendships you make and, and you know, everybody wants to talk Michael. And I probably talked to George more than Michael. Yeah. Well, what, well, what were the circumstances around him just walking into the dugout? Did you know he was coming? 
no, I didn't. And he kind of, kind of surprised me. <laughs> um, but it was funny because he waited, he waited. Then after the game, we had lost that game. That was with the Phillies. We lost a lot of games. <laughs> and I remember. he was so respectful because we had lost that he was with a couple other guys and I can't remember who they were. And he stayed for literally two minutes because we had lost and he wanted to, he wanted to be respectful of the fact that we lost the game. Um, that was kind of the way he was. Uh, he, he just had so much respect for other people. And, and I always appreciated that. And, and I, again, I got to see him with his guard down, which a lot of people don't get to do, but I was amazed at how, you know, he, he had a really good antenna when that, you know, and that ten, an, antenna was up, he'd get a pretty good read on people. Well, that brings us to the biggest question that we will contemplate today. You managed Michael Jordan. You managed Doug Glanville. How would you compare that experience? <laughs> I remember my first conversation with Dougie and part of it was we had just gotten him from the Cubs and we were trying in Philadelphia. We knew we were going to be young and, and we were, we, we were going to take our lungs. But I remember telling Dougie, you don't have to apologize for being smarter than anybody else in the room. Because I remember hearing stories that, you know, you can't be a baseball player if you're that smart. And I remember thinking to myself, that should not be held against somebody. And, and Dougie, he, he played all the time. You never had to worry about him being where he was supposed to be. And I would say this whether he's on this call or not. And he was gonna he was gonna get close to two hundred hits. You could bear, you could guarantee that. It was he was a pleasure and he still is. When I see I'll see an op ed he'll write or something and I'll I'll read it and I'll read and I'll beam with pride because I just know that I was there at the beginning with him and it makes you feel good. Doug, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> no, I mean, look, it, playing for the Phillies with under uh, Terry was incredible. And because I think, you know, speaking now from the player side of what Michael Jordan must have experienced, is you gave us the power to be ourselves. You know, you really embraced people for who they were, where they were coming from, who they are. And I needed that at that time. You know, the Cubs, it was where I came up, but I was always in that are you a starter or are you not? And, and you gave me sort of that opportunity to be, you know, go, go play, you know, and, and be, be you. And like you said, you know, be the smartest guy, whatever people wanted to throw labels on, you know, ride through it. So, uh, you know, the green light, just go run, make, you know, get caught, just go be aggressive. <laughs> you know, that was, that was great for me. And so you made it, you know, really easy for me. And, uh, you know, and then on the other end, I remember you saying, you know, I played 150 something straight games. You said, look, I'm going to sit you down here because I think the bat is swinging you and it's supposed to be the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had so much fun and, uh, and, you know, class act, Terry, I mean, I, you know, I, I know this is not the great news, but in, when you got laid off by the Phillies at the end of the, what was it? 2000 season. Yeah. And, they and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they put the memo in our lockers in Florida before the season ended because the news had leaked out. Yeah. 
And yeah, they do. They they put up. They put it in everybody's locker. Everybody had a yeah. note in our locker saying for Akota to be let go at the end of the season. And and was it Vern Rule, our pitching coach, was so mad that he refused. He like walked out. He's like, I'm. I can't do this anymore. This was disrespectful. And you managed. <laughs> you managed the rest of that season after that memo was posted. Um, so, you know, I tip my cap to you, Terry. You know, yeah, that was that was not the funnest day, I admit, but it was it seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, I I had said all along the players come first, and I think you can't just say that when it's convenient. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons. I don't know if I'd want to go through it again, but I learned a lot of valuable lessons. But it's also it's so fun when you can look back and and laugh and be proud and and realize how much fun and how close you got to players. That's probably the the most special thing for me. Just hearing Dougie talk about things that happened and, you know, that's 20-something years ago. It makes you feel good. Well, so many good things flowed to both of you guys after that time. uh, That that makes me happy. And, uh, Terry, talking to you makes me happy, but I know you got to run. <laughs> so I'm going to let you do that. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking time out of your busy Netflix schedule to visit us here in Starkville. <laughs> but, but you can come back anytime and uh, be well. Hope to see you at a volleyball court sometime soon. <laughs> Jason, thank you. Dougie, thank you. I'm so proud of you, Doug. Every time. Oh my goodness. And Jason, you've been a friend for so long. I hope you guys keep doing this, and uh, I love the way you guys talk about baseball, and and it, it just makes me kind of beam with pride. So keep doing it, okay? Thanks, man. Right, Back Trevor, at great you. You're the best. You, You're the best. All right, guys. You know, Doug, I, I didn't intend for this to be an all Michael Jordan <laughs> episode of the podcast, but after <laughs> listening to, to Terry Francona talk, after watching that show. I'm I'm fascinated by that guy all over again. Uh, I know you actually got to know him a little bit. Tell us how that came about. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned about meeting him at the batting cage. That was sort of the first time when we were in the Southern League uh, playing against each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. And but the when you know the thing that sparked my sort of memory was when you asked him about coming to the game at Wrigley. Yeah. And he was with the Phillies, but that day we had, it was raining and there was a lot of rain delays and stops and starts. And I, I don't think I was starting that day. So I was, I was sitting on the bench and a security guard, you know, this, keep in mind, this is the home dugout, not Francona, right? The security guard comes into our dugout and says, you know, Hey, you know, s- someone here to see Glanville. Right. So I'm on the other side of the dugout and they, so I'm like, what, you know, middle of the game, <laughs> you know, it was so weird. <laughs> So I like kind of blew it off and like, he said, no, 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 come here. So I go and, you know, at Wrigley, you kind of back in the day, you go down the stairs and you hang this hard right. And, and boom, Michael Jordan is standing in the tunnel, right? <laughs> like what? Oh <laughs> so, God. Yeah. So he's standing there and he's like, Hey man, you know, I've been following your career. I always appreciated, you know, our, our conversations by the cage. And he was just super gracious. And you know, I remember talking to him about North Carolina. My family was also from North Carolina, my mom's side. So we, we spent a lot of time talking about different places. And so he brought all this back up and he's like, look, I've been following your career. You're doing a great job. And, you know, here's my cell phone. Just call me anytime. It was so crazy. So of course, 
Sosa, all these Cubs guys who had been around the block who'd, who hadn't met him necessarily in this context were, they were like jaw dropped. Like the, the expression <laughs> on people, because I was a rookie, you know, people were like, well, how do you know this guy? So um, yeah, so it was great. And, and for quite a while, I called him and had conversations with him periodically. We, sp- we spent almost an hour one time talking about Scotty Pippen and the team dynamic. Is certainly wait, 90- wait, 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 I want to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, well, you know, 96, and if you're watching the, I don't want to spoiler alert with the Jerry Krause's relationship with Pippen soured. Yeah. And, and I know there was, there was a lot of tension there. So at some point later, I called him about Scotty Pippen's role on the team. And I was into basketball. I followed a lot. So we spoke all, you know, at length about Pippen and, you know, he had great things to say about him from a, from his playing standpoint and what he adds and how they need him in a certain mindset. And I learned a lot about just competitive, advantage and sports and teamwork, just listening to him. I mean, he, what struck me about him in talking, you know, in these conversations was he knew every single player and their weaknesses and how to address it. And then how he grew to want to lead them into a place that they could work together as opposed to him, you know, Jordan in isolation. Cause what Jackson brought was, you know, and Craig Hodges talked about this, the triangle kind of offense where everybody touches the ball. If they double team him, he kicks it back out, you know, those kinds of things where he really embodied team. And I, you know, I learned, so I learned a lot just listening to him, you know, talk about it through what I, what I could translate into also baseball. So uh, just, you know, incredible mind. And, you know, I was sitting there pinching myself talking to Michael Jordan about the Bulls, but he, he indeed was talking very forthcoming. <laughs> wow. And all right, you played in a pickup game against Michael Jordan. What do you remember about him? We don't really care what you did in that game. What do you remember yeah. about him? <laughs> I had a couple steals, a few rebounds. Uh, well, Frank, you know, it, it was it was incredible because obviously I'm on the court with the greatest basketball player probably of all time, and the athleticism was just unexplained. But the trash talk, the trash talk, which of course he had every right to do so, was. <laughs> unbelievable like for example if you if you dared wear Reeboks he isolated on you he said are those Reeboks on you're not wearing Reeboks are you and then he would <laughs> drive and slam on you whatever it took so that he would talk about I'm going to make wait, this wait, wait one I didn't wear question. I wasn't wearing Reeboks I wasn't not wearing you. Reeboks okay. no this it wasn't was, me this was other people other people they're uncool people uh, the yes the uncool by the standard yes and uh, he would talk about, I'm going to do something right now that you're going to tell your grandkids about. You know, he would say, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. And the, but what he could figure out about you, you know, talk about the weaknesses. So in this game, Curtis Pride was on our team and he was good. He played in college and, you know, all this, right? So he was our guard, but Curtis couldn't go left. And Jordan would say, okay, he would announce this, of course. All right, Curtis Pride, I can see you can't go left. So I, and he would angle off and cut <laughs> off that entire side of the court. So he couldn't go. And I mean, he just, just could see things. And it wasn't like I was some NBA star, but you know, he knew right away things you could or couldn't do. And uh, so I, one time, and I, and I was fast, so I could keep up with anybody. And I, I, so he was dribbling down and I came up behind him full court and I stole it to it the other way, right? Michael so, Jordan. I stole it from, yes, he was dribbling and he was kind of setting up his play and I ran down the court and I stole it. By the way, this is on video, so I'm not making this up and, you know, returned it back. So the next time, okay, I, he, he gets a breakaway. I run him down 
And I decide that I'm about to die because he's, he's going to jump at some point and there's no way I'm going to stop him. But I figured it would be an honor for him to jump and have his knees in my face. I just thought that would be an honor. <laughs> so I literally kept running and tried to jump. He jumped and literally he was practically sitting on my head. I mean, I jumped <laughs> at my full height and he just slammed the ball. And of course, and I just said, I'm just going to wear the poster because I just need to do it. But the thing that was so crazy is, and I, I could get on the rim. He would jump, and when I jumped, I would just, my hands would get to like his waist. So every shot he took, <laughs> his shots were downhill. They were like, that's why you saw that line drive shots he had. There wasn't a lot of arc in his shooting because he literally was above the rim and he was shooting down. I mean, and, and so I got to see this in real time. It was, it was just, it was mind blowing. And we, were, we had a good team, Lyle Mouton, and, and like, you know, the world will recognize that this is cool to hear that we beat his team, and that is a true. Terry Francona will attest to this. We beat his team. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying it would, if it was legit or if it was some final, that would never happen. But we ended up on top, and he, he got upset and kicked the ball into the lights, and uh, that's what happened. And yeah. Curtis Pride, and uh, <laughs> I have witnessed. But wow, wow. Just, it was just wow. Just yeah. wow. And now, now we know. We have an explanation for how your team beat his team. It was all Terry Francona's fault. <laughs> yes, he does. He took a shot at the end. I don't know why, but I was uh, thankful for thought that. he should take the big shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. All right. Let me ask you it's, it, you know, it's the question. Do you think that Michael Jordan could have played in the big leagues? I, I think he probably could have only, look, there's twofold, two parts to this. One is, I, the the White Sox were invested in a way that if he showed any signs of it, they would have called him up. I think they were, excuse me, I think they were looking for an opportunity to bring him up. Oh, and, yeah. and and if you're a fourth, fifth outfielder, a pinch run, because he was a good, you know, a good base runner. Yeah. So I think he would have gotten there, even if it was just on that. Now he wouldn't have been satisfied with that. And you know, let's let's look at the scouting report from my vantage point. I saw him in center field. We have video still of when we played against him. You know, he had a slow bat. His bat was, he had a long swing and he was a big guy, really big guy. So I don't know if he would have smoothed that out. He did kill us. I don't know if it was a White Sox Cubs thing, but he really did well against us. And Derek Wallace was our number one draft pick. He threw 96 and he hit balls down the line off him, doubles. I mean, he, so I, I don't know. Maybe he would have figured out because in the fall league, he certainly did. But, you know, his defense wasn't, although he could cover a lot of ground, he had, trouble reading in the beginning but by the end of the season his routes were better he was picking the spots better he was just making better contact but he, he did he had a long swing and it was hard for him to cover the fastball and the curveball in any you know capable way but the work ethic you know being out there before we got to the batting cage at our field he was working out he was hitting early he was hitting after the game if there's anybody who could have figured it out enough to that level coming from basically scratch it's michael jordan you know, Doug, I don't know about you, but I remember going to see him in spring training and looking at him and thinking, this is surreal. <laughs> Michael Jordan is wearing a baseball uniform. You, like, you really had to pinch yourself to say, this is really happening in this planet that we live in. I, I don't know if you ever got that sense, did you? I mean, it, yeah, I, I just didn't understand what I was seeing. First of all, he was really tall, right? I didn't, you see him on TV and he's a guard and, but he, he was three, he was four or five inches taller than me. 
And so this is a, a really tall person. So I was like, okay. And then to see him trying to manipulate the bat and adjust. And, and once again, he went to double A. Double A is a tough league because it's where all the A ball talent kind of funnels to this one team. There's not five levels of A, a ball or double A as there is an A ball. So he had to play against some of the top prospects, first round draft picks. So that made it even harder because this is a good, this is a competitive league. I hit, what did I hit that year? 264 maybe? I mean, I did okay, you know, and there was some tough competition in that league. So he, he held his own. And, you know, there's no doubt that it, I, it was jaw-dropping. First of all, we got these crowds, 8,000 in a, yeah. a 5,000 capacity. You know, there was this spilling over. So it was a little intimidating for me at first, all the crowds. But, um, of course, he was familiar with it, but he also was not in his element. So it took some time. But he, he was always gracious. I, I literally have an Ed Smith and I, a teammate of mine, share these spikes because he used to wear these high top black spikes that were, you know, Nike with um, boots, but they had spikes at the bottom. And I have an autograph signed uh, copy, uh, not copy, a pair of them. Uh, so I don't know nice. what that's worth. <laughs> I don't know what that's worth, but <laughs> yeah, he, he was, he was great, but he was really gracious. He was very gracious, very humble and, you know, rubbed off on his competitive rubbed off everywhere, not just in his dugout, but in, in the opponent's dugout also. Wow. So so cool to listen to these stories. That uh, just it's just so much fun talking about Michael Jordan. But you know what? That we should move on because I'll tell you what else I did last week that was also fun. I dug into the weirdest home run ever hit. Uh, it's part of a series that I'm doing. I'm writing about the strangest but truest games of the 21st century and. For the first episode, first installment of that series, I I chose, I think, my favorite strange but true moment ever. This was September 26th, 2008. Benji Molina, who we dubbed the most creative Molina brother of them all, <laughs> he hits a home run for the Giants, but does not even score a run on his own homer that is impossible so let's go back and listen to how the great john miller described it at the time molina down the right field line deep that ball is off the top of the wall right at the top of the willie mays wall only a single for benji as repco played the carom cleanly benji would like the umpires to rethink that and just give him a home run and bruce borsi it's going to come out and ask for this one to be reviewed. So if they overrule this, and the guy who hit the home run is already out of the game, does <laughs> yeah, Burris run the rest of the way around the bases? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. <laughs> well, we may have an all-time Major League record. But if they signal home run here, this place is going to go off. It's a home run. So Emmanuel Burris, the pinch runner, goes into his home run trot. So Benji just hit a home run, and he didn't find out until he was after actually out of the game. Now that's got to be an all-time first. Who gets the run scored? Uh, this just in. That was an all-time first, and also an all-time last. We, we never had a situation where a guy got pinch run for in the middle of his own home run trot because of a replay. And... Uh, the whole deal was, all right, Benji hits this ball at the top of the wall. He's on first base. In comes Manny Burris to pinch run for him at first base. While all this is going on, Omar Vizquel goes up to Bruce Bochy and says, 
no, that ball was not a single. That was a homer. I heard it. Why don't you go ask the umpires to take a look at the replay? And uh, by the way, this was Bruce Bochy's first ever replay challenge. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And the, so this thing gets overturned. Benji Molina puts his helmet back on. He starts up the steps. Next thing you know, Emmanuel Burris is taking his home run trot scoring the run after his homer so what do you think doug how nuts was that i mean it's total nuts like i (laughs) i'm trying to figure out so so he he hits home run so his box his line score i mean what was it what was the box score three zero he had no run no home no run scored that day it was and he had if i remember this right it was three zero one two something like that so so he didn't score uh, he didn't get credited with scoring a run, he I should ask. did not get credit okay. for the run scored after his <laughs> own homer because he was, was not permitted to re-enter the game to complete so, his try. So if he drove, if for RBI purposes, did he knock in Burris? He did. He, did. he, <laughs> drove, he had a two-run homer. He drove in two runs with the homer. Amazingly, one of the runs he drove in was not him. It <laughs> was not himself. No. <laughs> My goodness. I, I, don't, I don't know what to oh. say. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let me ask you a couple of things, all right? Um, in the column, um, we called it the home run that broke baseball reference. <laughs> and, you know, everybody knows what baseballreference.com is, right? It's a treasure trove of every box score in history dating back to 1904. But if you go and look up that game on baseball reference, you know what you'll find? You'll find a box score that is incorrect. It shows Benji Molina scoring the run, and it does not show Emmanuel Burris as having played at all. Now, there's two reasons that this box score is wrong. The first is no computer believes that the impossible is possible. <laughs> okay. Yes. Because so, therefore, the computer would not believe that a man hit a home run, but did not score a run on his own homer. Uh, When they tried to enter that, that could not be done by any computer. But the second reason is, it's now 12 years later, right? They could have changed it. But it's now wrong on baseball reference on purpose because Sean Foreman, who was the founder of baseball reference, told me he thought it was such a dumb rule by the umpires that Benjamin Molina could not (laughs) go back in the game to finish his home run trot that he refuses <laughs> to defies the special code it would take to fix this thing. Right. So like the box score is wrong. There is a 114 word preamble on the <laughs> site, which explains this. So that's incredible enough in and of itself. But right. all right, Doug, here's my question. I know that baseball reference isn't technically the official source of all baseball stats and box scores, but it kind of is for most of us. So is it all right if they allow a box score on their site to be wrong and know it's wrong? Yeah, I mean, it's fine because they're, they're making a statement. They're making a statement. And I, I, you know, I don't know what, the, what is the Hall of Fame. You know, I'm sure they have their, you know, he didn't score. And uh, I'm curious if you go back and come up with how many runs in a career did Molina score? I, I don't know. Will someone reconcile this one day? They, Probably. They did, yeah, they did. I mean, the the runs scored for Benjamin Molina in his career page are correct, mm-hmm. but if you add up like the day by days, yeah, they, right. they're uh, not correct. Yeah, uh, and and by by all standards, so that because not just Baseball Reference, but the the Hall of Fame documents it. 
Um, it's, this, now, this is a funny postscript. Since I wrote the column, uh, I, like I, w- I had been told that Major League Baseball you know, went in a couple of days later and rectified it. Right. So at least they had it right. I got a message from a guy who does this stuff for NLB uh, over the weekend. And he told me, we still don't have it right either. But now we feel kind of guilty about it. <laughs> okay. So nobody's got this right except for RetroSheet because Dave Smith, the founder of RetroSheet, told me it was bugging him that he had this box score wrong. And so he fixed it. And I think it's the only box score in history that baseball reference and retro sheet do not agree on. They have different pocket scores. So that was just all, just part of the craziness. Now here's another part that I love about it. The Omar Vizquel portion of these festivities, because as I said, it was Omar who told Bruce Bochy, it's not a home. That's a Homer. I heard it. And how did Omar know it was a home run just from the sound? Because he told me this every day when he played in San Francisco, he used to shag in right field during batting practice. And that's a position he played for one inning in his entire (laughs) career out of 25,000 innings. So what was he doing out there in right field? Doug, you can appreciate this. He thought it was cool to to play the caroms off that wall out there because the corner, the brick, (laughs) yeah, the cutouts so people can see in, right? So every day out there in batting practice, he heard the sound of balls hitting that metal roof thing above the wall. He knew intuitively what it sounded like because he'd heard it hundreds of times. So Doug, isn't that the most Omar of a scale thing ever? Oh, totally. I mean, he's he's the player you played against that was 18 years ahead of you. Like, he's just new stuff. Was uh, He might be psychic. I I, I mean, the guy was uh, – uh, he created aspects of the game, just like the way he turned double plays, the barehanded play. So, no, it's, that's consistent. So, he heard the sound. And I get that part. And, you know, playing in uh, Fenway or something, it hits the ladder. I mean, you know a different sound uh, or then Enron Field back in the day, Minute Maid. You heard certain sounds that had different reactions. That sound is important, but the fact that he knew that from just shagging fly balls is a, a typical Omar Vizquel. <laughs> yeah, just the attention to detail is, you know, you, people look at Omar and they find reasons that he's not a Hall of Famer or he wasn't that great, but uh, this is the th- these are the little things that he brought to the table that he brought to every team he played on. I always tell people there's a reason they let you play 23 years. (laughs) We're talking about genius level baseball IQ. And that means something at least to me. Uh, All right. Now one more thing before we move on, you played nine years in the big leagues. You played 14 seasons of professional baseball. What's the strangest home run that you ever hit? Well, (laughs) I mean, most of them were strange as power wasn't my game at a certain point. <laughs> but yeah. but the, the, <laughs> the, I do have a home run that should have been a home run that was trying, they were trying to change into a home run, but they couldn't turn into a home run. So that, that's, so it's crazy enough to fit a little bit into you, this. Hold on a second. Wait, you hit a home run, I hit a home run. but nobody would change it to a home run? Right, because it, it was inside the park. Yeah. I, I hit a home run. Yeah. They didn't rule it to be a home run. Then they realized it was a home run. And when they tried to change it, it was too late to change it. So it went down as the home run that never happened. <laughs> um, 
So the story goes is this. We're in Colorado. And actually, I had a home run already in this game. right? So I hit a home run. I think it was Denny Nagel or something. And I get up. I hit the ball down the third baseline. So, you know, in, in cores, there's so much outfield out there that, you know, if it hits in a gap, it's a triple. So Dante Bichette is playing left field. It ricochets off the corner wall, and he, he just overran it. He went too far down the line towards the wall, and it kicked back right in towards center field. So he just overran it, didn't even come close to touch it. It didn't go through his glove, didn't go through his legs. He just overran it, and it ricocheted back then, and I circled the bases. Four bases, home run. Scorer goes up there and goes double and a two-base error. And people are like, what? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so, you know, the official scorer is up there in the press box or wherever. And so people are on him, you know. So I think they've changed this since. But, the, you know, the media from Philly was like, what are you talking about? The PR guy, Gene Dias. <laughs> and so he agrees to change it. And because Gene calls him or whatever happens later. And he says, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I've looked at it or whatever. He's on vacation that weekend. So he says, well, I'll get to it like on Monday. And then fi- come to find out there's a statute of limitation. If you, if you don't submit the change in 24 hours, you can't change it at that point. So he agreed to change it and he was out of time, took too long. And so to this day, it's a double and a two base error. <laughs> so, so, so Major League Baseball would rather get the play wrong than say, because this guy was on vacation, we'll give him an extra day to get it right. I didn't know this. Yeah, I think there's a that's you can only too. change. Yeah, you can only change the scoring uh, twenty four hours. That's that's what I was told. Twenty four hours, and I get that. You know, you get influenced. Like eight, eight years later, it's like, oh yeah, this guy said this. I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with bribery. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. But there's there was definitely a time limit, and that was it. So you know, and I would have had sixty career home runs if I got this. So you know that. I would have loved to have that nice round number. You and but. Babe Ruth. Oh, well. <laughs> and yeah, not as strange as Benji Molina, but pretty strange. No. That's, a good, that's a good one. Doug, it's time for that portion of this podcast that we look forward to every week. Listener trivia. It's our way of involving you guys, our favorite listeners in this show. We'll tell you how that works shortly. But here comes this week's question. It is from John Stolness, whose Twitter handle coincidentally is at John Stolness. <laughs> J-O-H-N-S-T-O-L-N-I-S. Uh, I should tell you that John is from Philadelphia. I've appeared on his Phillies podcast, uh, which is now called Hitting Season. Uh, so this is kind of a turnabout. Fair play. And he asked a really fun question. We had so many good ones this week. It was hard to pick. But here it comes. He asks us, this week, back in 1987, Mike Schmidt hit his 500th home run. And in 1976, he hit four home runs in a game. But here comes his real question. Over the last 50 years, only two players have more fan graphs wins above replacement than Schmidt. Name them. Got it? Yeah. Last 50 years, two players with more wins above replacement than Mike Schmidt. Uh, Doug, this is hard. Uh, I'm, I'm sure one of these guys is Barry Bonds. The question is, who is the other? Mm. And uh, I, I've got it down to A-Rod, Albert Pujols, Randy Johnson, 
and Roger Clemens. You know, I look at the baseball reference wins above replacement all the time. The, the Fangraphs leaderboard, I'm not as up on. I, I'm going to guess A-Rod, but I have no confidence that that's right. What do you think? Yeah, those <clears throat> those were my two guesses. Now, do we do the double guess thing where I pick two other people and then we get it right? Well, as Barry's, one one, Barry's <laughs> got to be right. You can right, pick right. one of the other people, though. Why not? Uh, we'll, take, we'll do that. Okay. Um, well, yeah, Pujols is a good one. Um, and he's played forever. Yeah, those pitchers always get you, man. I know those pitchers sneak up on you, man. Randy yeah, Johnson, man. Clemens. Ooh, all right. I'll, I'll go Albert Pujols as, my, as our backup guess. <laughs> okay, so Bonds and A-Rod or Bonds and Pujols. Those would be our guesses. Let's call in the mayor to see how wrong we got this. <laughs> yeah, Barry was a gimme. Uh, his F4, 164.4. And then Jason A-Rod is the correct answer uh, for the second individual who excellent. had an F4 greater than Schmidt in the last 50 years at 113.7. Nice. It is A-Rod? Yes. Seriously? Yes, yeah. A-Rod, yeah. I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> I know Holy it's such crap. a rarity. Yeah. I was, I was all braced to get it wrong. Uh, I, I, I did take a peek at baseball reference and, uh, Roger Clemens actually, I think, ranked second on baseball reference. Wow. But that's okay. I'm I'm happy to get one right by some miracle. Yeah, all right. Yeah, let's celebrate. Let's do a little uh, end zone dance, huh? Absolutely. Okay, so as John mentioned, uh, a few days ago was the anniversary of Mike Schmidt's 500th homer. So we're going to just talk about that for a couple of minutes because I was there. And Doug, you are a huge Phillies fan. Yes. And since we like to use these questions to inspire a fun topic on the podcast, here's what we're going to do. We're going to listen now to the legendary Harry Callis call that home run because it's one of his all-time calls. Let's do it. Here's the stretch by Robinson. 3-0 pitch. Swing and long drive. There it is. Number 500. The career 500th home run for Michael Jack Smith. And the Phillies have regained the lead at Pittsburgh. 8-6. And the Phillies dugout comes swarming out to home plate. That is a storybook 500 home run. No doubt about it. Doug, I'd oh, enjoy hearing yeah. Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn again, man. Oh, chills, man. Chills. I, I just, <laughs> right? Man, I love that time. I love yeah. it. I know. I know you love Schmitty. Um, that, just so people know, that was uh, it was a game-winning home run with two outs in the ninth inning after they'd blown a lead uh, the previous half innings. So that was a... That's a pretty good script for a guy's 500th home run. But I want to tell you the part of that day that I will never forget. Okay, uh, okay, hits the home run in the ninth inning. Phillies win. Go to the clubhouse, do the interviews. Interviews over. Players all dressed. Uh, bus to the airport, getting ready to leave. I don't know what the heck I was still doing it there, <laughs> but I. Uh, I used to wait people out if I had time. So I was still in the room and now I'm getting ready to leave. But here comes Harry Callis himself entering the room. And, uh, you know, he and his fellow broadcasters had brought with them the recording of that call that we just listened to. So it was amazing. Like everybody's going about their business. The next thing we know, 
they all stop and they gather around the recorder mm. and they hit play and we they play that call you just heard there it is <laughs> okay so they listen to it and there there's just there's just a roar in a clubhouse that you never hear right like the the walls of the clubhouse <laughs> are rattling and when they when they listen to this thing and they cheer and the noise dies down you know what happened they said can we hear that again <laughs> and they played it again and then they played it again mm-hmm. and then they played it again and guys are screaming and like i had this realization that day and i know you understand this phenomenon it's almost like these players, even though they played in the game, didn't fully comprehend what happened until they heard Harry Callis describe it. It was amazing. What a scene. And so, Doug, I, I know you love Mike Schmidt. What did that moment mean to you? Wow. I mean, it, I, I loved Schmidt. And I, I, I love the Phillies and, and uh, certainly Gary Maddox, Steve Carlton, uh, Schmidt was my, my favorite. And if you ever watch, <clears throat> if you go back and watch my uh, my getting in the batter's box every day, every time I went to hit, I tapped the plate both yeah. ends, just like Schmidt. That was oh. that was a, my, my uh, honor in homage to, to Michael Jack and his influence on my career. I imitated a number of times in, in wiff, wiffle ball, so then it became real. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, so one thing, that you that touched on with with Harry Callis. That's the other aspect of this that is so magical because I remember that call, and you know I had the honor of playing under his voice for so many years in Philly, and I had an inside the park one time, and I remember coming out of that inside the park thinking literally about what Harry Callis his call <laughs> would sound like. I mean, he, you know, I used to say, you know, you know, if, if Harry didn't call it as if, as if it didn't happen. You know, he just had the, um, the magic where, you know, you, you paint a picture, uh, you know, pictures a thousand words, but Harry's words were a thousand pictures. He just, he just had that type of beauty to, and descriptive capability with energy and emotion to it that I, I think those players and the people in that room understood that because as a, as a ball player, you're, you are stuck in the moment for that second. And then you're kind of transitioning all the time to the next pitch, to the next at bat, and you have a game and then another game, and you don't always take the minute to get perspective. And so the call of Harry framed it for people in a way that players very rarely take in. They're always stuck in, you know, okay, you know, here I am and I'm trying to perform. Even today in the modern day of, you know, going on and watching it and the highlights and on your phone, it's not the same as, as it being relived like that. And the voice of Callus was one of those that just stood stood alone, so I 100% get it. And, and he he framed history like you know some of the great voices of of all time in sports, and and players appreciated that, and, and they appreciated the man because he traveled with us on the planes and he was part of the team. So uh, you know, may he rest in peace. Wow, that's uh, that that's cool, and so it's so interesting. As as many times as I watched you step into the batter's box, as many hours of we as we've spent talking, I never knew that your routine was homage to Mike Schmidt. How about that? All right, one more thing, one more quick thing. Over the weekend, 
I was missing baseball. So I did what a lot of people are doing these days. I headed for YouTube to try to find some classic game to watch. And I realized something. On YouTube, there is now a list of 162 classic games that you can dial up and watch any time in the MLB vault. Uh, you know what all those games have in common? Doug Glanville <laughs> played in none of them. <laughs> you, you were on the roster for the Cubs uh, game six and seven, 2003. All right. You didn't get into either game. So, Doug, I decided after perusing that list that you're either the man that history forgot or you're the man that YouTube forgot. <laughs> so, I would like to propose that you should now boycott YouTube <laughs> For the rest of your life, I don't. Will, I don't want you to watch one more viral video of dogs skateboarding or Donald Duck's fiftieth funniest cartoons or any of that. Doug, oh, how, so how outraged are you to discover you're the man that history and YouTube forgot? Yeah, I'll, I'll blame YouTube more than history on that one, but uh, <laughs> I it's I can't even promise to boycott it because it's like uh, kids, everybody watches. I just watch if you haven't seen it, Hamilton did like a zoom Hamilton for a young girl oh, in yeah. Jacksonville. Great. Oh, wow. Best. So I just, it's kind of hard not to, I could try to find it somewhere else, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, and yeah, I was there on those Cubs things. That was, those were horrible of course for us, but, uh, but yeah, the, the, the moments that they captured, I have to go through the list, but I'm sure there's some pretty special games. So I'll, I'll, I played in a few, but none of those, I guess yeah. that I was 1, on the field. <laughs> 1100 games in the big leagues. Yeah. Zero games on YouTube. <laughs> it's an YouTube. outrage. It's an outrage. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, that's going to do it for this edition of Starkville. Um, uh, you know, you, it, it, I, you can boycott YouTube if you want, but whatever you do, <laughs> don't boycott this podcast <laughs> no. because uh, Starkville continues to be available absolutely free everywhere that you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much everywhere podcasts are available. Not to mention, you can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing there is a team in the big leagues that you care about. And if you didn't know, the Athletic now has 16 local major league podcasts featuring not just our great baseball writers, but all kinds of broadcasters, former players, other baseball luminaries, and like Starkville, they are also available free wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, Doug, if you've thought about subscribing to The Athletic, we are still producing incredible baseball stories despite the absence of actual baseball games. You can get 40% off a new subscription by going to theathletic.com slash Starkville with an E on the end. In between podcasts, remember to read us at the Athletic website and on the Athletic app. And remember that you too can be part of this podcast and achieve those 15 seconds of fame. Here's how you do that. You need to submit a trivia question that the evil mayor of Starkville, Mayor Cam, decides will make me and Doug look like dopes as usual, even though we got this one right. Um, then we'll use your question to inspire a fun topic on the podcast. So you can submit those questions via email, 
You would do that by emailing us at Starkville with an E on the end at theathletic.com. Or you can tweet them at us. Doug, how would they find you? Oh, at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And I'm at Jason S-T, at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Just remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS, Starkville with an E-Q-S. Doug, thanks for playing and reminiscing. Thanks to you all for listening. We will see you next week on Starkville.